Could you turn please to Revelation chapter 4? Revelation chapter 4. Uh, we'll continue this, this series. Uh, we started off with an introductory message entitled The Heart of the Matter is the Heart and made the point that, that we should not get so caught up on our outward behavior but instead we should focus on living in a way that allows the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and then our outward behavior will flow from that. And we are now journeying through what's called the spiritual disciplines or the disciplines of the Spirit, which are the things that we can do, the way we can live, organize our lives in order to present ourselves to God like a little boat, putting his sail up so that the wind of the Spirit can be caught by the sail and we can be propelled forward and we can be transformed. So, so far we've looked at meditation on God's Word. Um, we've looked at prayer. Our last week, Stefan led us in, in thinking about prayer. And the third one, the third discipline of the Spirit that I want to look at today is worship. So let's go to Revelation 4 and 5, and I'll pick out a few verses there just to get us started. There's so much you could say about worship. It's a vast topic, uh, so I'm limited today in what we can do, but we want to focus mainly on uh, what worship is, how the Spirit is involved in worship, and how we can be transformed by worshiping God. It's Revelation 4. John is having a vision, and he says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. And John goes on to describe this scene around the throne. And then further down in verse 9, he writes, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Verse 9, they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll. Verse 12, in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb. Verse 14, the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. 
And I've intentionally, out of that amazing scene of worship, I've intentionally picked out a word that appears a few times in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and it's the word worthy. Worship comes from worthy-ship. Worthy-ship. Uh, it's a shortened version of those two words put, put together. And to worship God is to see Him as worthy and to ascribe worth and glory to Him. Uh, it is basically part of our DNA and who we are to praise things that we see that we find amazing. On Monday night, I was in uh, the beloved heartland of Loch Gaul, and uh, Linda and I were out for a walk with my brother and his wife. And as we were walking back to their house, the, the sky, the sunset on Monday night, it was, I don't know what, maybe half nine, ten o'clock, and the color of the sky where the sun was setting was actually like a neon hot pink. It was incredible. And you couldn't just walk along and not notice it. And you couldn't walk along and notice it and not say something about it. There was something in the beauty and the amazement of it that, that you drew each other's attention to it. It doesn't matter whether it's a sunset, whether it's a piece of music, whether it's a stunning goal in a football match. Whenever something happens that, that just rouses us and that we're amazed by or we think it's fantastic, we respond with praise. We respond by telling others what we have seen. Uh, the, obviously, the, the phenomenon of the last decade is taking photographs of everything and posting them on social media so other people can see the amazing things that we have seen. And it is the same with God. Whenever we understand who God is, there is a response within us to cry out to him, to praise him, and to declare that he is worthy. He is to be worshipped. And worship, I would sort of define as a choice on our part to respond in adoration and devotion to God and to declare the worth of the one who has sought us and redeemed us. It's a choice to respond in adoration and devotion to God and to declare the worth of the one who has sought us and redeemed us. It can be corporate. We can do it all together. We can worship God together. We have missed that desperately. And even though we have not suffered very much over the last few months compared to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. We maybe get a little glimpse into what it's like to try to be the church without large corporate gatherings of praise, which we enjoy so much where we encounter God. So it can be corporate or it can be private. And I would say to you that, that we, we've talked in the last couple of weeks about meditation on God's Word and about prayer. And those are things that we do privately a lot as well as corporately in our devotional times each day. I would encourage you to get worship into that devotional time, that quiet time, whatever you want to call it, where you spend uh, time each day with God, that you worship Him, that you declare His worth that you just overflow with love and devotion to him, whether that's through music or through silence or whatever it may be, but there is a time of focused worship on God. Whenever Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? His response was he gave two for the price of one. And he said, first of all, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. 
And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now he gave them in that order for a reason. If we get caught up with service, but neglect worship, we are not obeying the command of the Lord. If we get caught up, if a church gets completely consumed with activity and busyness, serving, good as that is, if that's happening and devotion and love and worship are not happening, then we've got things the wrong way around. So how is worship a discipline of the Spirit and how are we transformed by it? Hebrews 13 talks about a sacrifice of praise. In the Old Testament, there were many sacrifices. In the New Testament, we are commanded to bring a sacrifice of praise. Now, a sacrifice does not happen by accident. That's something that I need you to get. A sacrifice is, is something that you choose to do. So when I tried to define worship earlier, I said that worship is a choice. God cannot force me to worship him. I must choose. When you read the biblical words that are used in Hebrew uh, involved in, in worship, listen to what those words actually mean. The Hebrew word for worship literally means to prostrate yourself, to, to fall on the ground on your face before someone, God. It's a physical term doesn't happen by accident okay yes you can trip up and fall but that's not what we're talking about for you to be on your face on the ground in front of somebody is not something that happens by accident the hebrew word for bless another word that's used in the context of worshiping god bless the lord O my soul that word bless <clears throat> literally its first meaning is to kneel and the word in hebrew for thanksgiving is to extend your hands. Right? They're all physical words. To, to, to prostrate yourself on the ground, to kneel, to extend your hands, they're all physical words. The point I'm trying to make is a sacrifice of praise, worship does not happen by accident. It's something that you have to choose to engage in. To physically present yourself to God in a posture that is consistent with the posture of your heart within you. It's a choice. Just this morning in my reading plan, I read Psalm 108. I will sing and make music with all my soul. A choice. I'm going to do it. It did not happen by accident. I am going, I am choosing to do this. And it's also a costly thing, a sacrifice, whether in the Old Testament or whether a New Testament sacrifice of praise, it's costly. It's not something that is given uh, willy-nilly. It is a costly thing. David writes in 1 Chronicles 21, he's offered, uh, a guy offers him his threshing floor for making sacrifices and for building an altar to God and offers him the, the things that he needs. And David says, no, I'll pay you for it. He says, I'm not bringing an offering to God that does not cost me something. And one of the greatest acts of worship in the New Testament in John 12 involves a lady called Mary bowing at the feet of Jesus and pouring perfume over his feet. Perfume that was worth about a year's worth of wages. Pouring it over his feet because he's worthy. 
worship. She wasn't singing on this occasion that we're aware of, but it was an act of devotion and adoration on Jesus. And just as a side note, when you read John chapter 12, you read about Mary pouring the the perfume over Jesus' feet and the smell of the perfume fills the whole house. And the previous time you've read about a smell in the Gospel of John is John chapter 11, just on the same page a few verses earlier, and the smell is the stench of death in the tomb of Lazarus, where Jesus is told not to roll the stone away because Lazarus has been in there four days and he's stinking of death. But once Jesus has come on the scene, you move from this smell of death to this fragrance of perfume that fills the whole house. Class. It's costly. Peter and John in Acts chapter 5 take a beating for preaching about Jesus. And after they have been released, we read that they go rejoicing. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison famously singing hymns, praying and singing hymns at midnight in prison. In each of those cases, that's a sacrifice of praise. When Peter and John were beaten, they were well beaten. They were in agony, yet they chose to praise and rejoice. And likewise, Paul and Silas, it was not a context for for a worship event sitting in prison at midnight, but they chose to bring a sacrifice of praise. Have you ever not really wanted to praise God? Not really felt in the mood for it? Uh, For whatever reason, you're just not in the zone for worship, or so you think, At those moments, you have to make a choice to bring a sacrifice of praise. I have encountered times in my life where my arms have been like two lead weights. My heart has been heavy. I've been in in pain with what's going on around me. And I've had to make the decision to lift my hands and to praise and to sing with all my soul and worship God. And one of the songs that ministered to me deeply and profoundly in and one particular season was was the song i think it was jonathan helser wrote it with his wife um raise a hallelujah i am going to sing in the middle of the storm i've made a decision the storm will not silence me circumstances pressures difficulties pain these things will not silence me i'm going to sing louder and louder and louder And worship is not restricted to singing, but singing is a huge part of it for the New Testament church, for the people of God. And that decision, I'm not just going to hang my head and feel sorry for myself. I'm going to sing. John chapter 4. If you could go there, please. A couple of, again, familiar verses on worship. So, so far we see that worship is a sacrifice, it's a choice, and that's why it's a discipline of the Spirit, because it's something that I do. I, have, I can decide to withhold worship from God, or I can decide to give Him worship. It is my act of putting the sail up when I worship Him. It says in John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, And they get into a discussion about worship. And he says in verse 23, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. I love the end of verse 23 there. God the Father is seeking. He's on a recruitment drive looking for worshippers. That's what he's after. He draws, he seeks, we respond. So earlier when I defined worship, I said that worship was a choice. And I also said that worship was a response. We, it's the choice to respond in adoration and devotion to God. Whenever I worship him, I am not trying to get his attention. It's not a case of, God, look at me. I'm on my knees. My hands are raised. I'm worshiping you. Would you please notice me and do what I want? It's not getting together as a church and singing as loud as we can, hoping that by singing loud, somebody in the throne room of heaven will go and tap God on the shoulder and say, have you seen the way those guys sing? You, you should go down and answer their prayers. It is not about me knocking on God's door and getting God's attention. That's not what worship is. Worship is not me seeking God. It is me responding to God who sought me. He sought me. He died for me. He redeemed me. And I respond by worshiping him. So don't be thinking, don't, I, I love a loud time of praise and worship with music. I love it. But don't think that in those circumstances that, that we are somehow trying to get God's attention. We've already got God's attention. God loves us. God sings over us. God's thoughts about us cannot be numbered. We've got his attention. He doesn't forget about us. Our worship is our response to the fact that he came looking for us. He seeks worshipers. And he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The Holy Spirit is involved in worship. If you haven't got it by now, the Holy Spirit is involved in every aspect of the Christian life. Everything. The Holy Spirit is involved in our worship. If our worship is about glorifying Jesus, about lifting him up, and making much of him, whether that's privately or together. John 15, 26 says about the Holy Spirit that he will testify about me, Jesus said. He will testify about me. He will declare to people who I am. In John 16, verse 14, again speaking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, he will bring glory to me. So whether I am sitting out in the garden early on a summer morning on my own, listening to the birds, or whether I am with God's people, whenever I'm worshiping and whenever I'm lifting up Jesus and exalting him, whatever that looks like physically or whatever it sounds like, the Spirit is involved. Whenever anyone is intent on glorifying Jesus, the Holy Spirit shows up to help out. Ephesians 5 is another famous 
um, verse just in this, or, or, or a couple of verses in this context of the Spirit and worship. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, my Bible there has a full stop, and then a new verse begins, and that's really unhelpful because it looks like you can then sort of separate what's going on. It says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Full stop. New thought. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. That's not the original sort of flow of thought in the verse. It's more like this. Take away the full stop at the end of verse 18. There's no punctuation in Greek, and there are no verse numbers. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, being filled with the Spirit immediately leads to corporate worship. God's people speaking to one another through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making music in our hearts and together. It is a sign of being filled with the Spirit that God's people then unite in worship of Him. And it makes perfect sense. The Spirit who glorifies Jesus, the Spirit who unites diverse people, the Spirit who brings the presence of God. As the Spirit comes and fills us, we then unite in a shout of praise to God. Many times involving music, but not always. The Psalms invite us to sing, not invite us, the Psalms command us to sing to the Lord at least 40 times that appears in the Psalms, that command, sing to the Lord. I don't understand Christians who have an issue with singing. I understand Christians who can't sing. I'm one of them, okay? I can't sing. It doesn't stop me. I do it. I do it with all my heart. I give it my best shot. I'm not a singer, but I love to sing. Not feeling that you're a professional singer is, is not a reason not to sing. We are commanded to sing. In Psalm 34, verse 3, there's that, again, that idea of corporate worship. So we've just read in Ephesians about how the Spirit then leads us into this corporate praise involving music and song. Psalm 34, verse 3, you've got the psalmist saying, Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Just imagine him running around his mates saying, Come on, guys, let's get together. And let's sing. Let's praise God. Psalm 95 sang every Sunday when I was a kid in the, in the Church of Ireland. Psalm 95 in Latin. It's the Venite. Starts off, Oh, come let us sing unto the Lord. Again, the writer is making the invitation. Come on, people. Come on and sing to the Lord together. Shout to the rock of our salvation. Come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. The invitation to corporate worship. Whenever we're in worship, we need to be aware of one another when we're singing and praising God together. And I know that that's difficult at the minute, but we're going to do some of that tonight in the back garden, socially distanced with a nice breeze and plenty of space. But the point is, 
that we must be aware of one another. There's a wee phrase that's sometimes knocked about in in the uh, context of praise and worship that I think we need to clarify what we mean by it. Sometimes you'll hear us say, forget about the person beside you. You just enter into worship and praise and forget about the person beside you. Now, what is meant by that is you praise God and don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you. But it's not a good phrase because the last thing we should ever do when we're gathered as the people of God is forget about the person beside us. That would be to contradict Ephesians 5 where we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. As we're worshiping God, we're not just communicating with God. We are communicating with each other. So by all means, please don't worry about what anyone else thinks of you and worship whatever way you're comfortable to worship. But don't be forgetting about people because that would not be to obey Scripture. One of the mightiest things that has happened regarding singing and worship in the last century has been the charismatic movement where there has been a huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit and the Spirit's activity in the life of the church and the individual Christian. And one of the things that has then come out of that is a huge new catalogue of songs. We are blessed just a vast overflow of of music and of worship that has come from the charismatic movement as a blessing to the global church in the last century and particularly probably in the last 20 or 30 years. Wonderful, wonderful music to allow us to worship God. Uh, I've been asked, you know, why do we not have on YouTube on a Sunday morning a time of, of worship? And it's as simple as this. It's a technical nightmare. It's a lot of pressure on a worship leader. And there's a vast quantity of wonderful worship sets already out there that you can sit and listen to on your own and allow them to stir your soul. One of the negative things that has gone along with that wonderful production of new worship music is people who think their gift is to analyze it and rip it to shreds and criticize it. You need to remember, folks, that worship songs are not scripture. They are not perfect, and they are not meant to be perfect. They are the attempts of a human being to express poetically and musically their adoration and their love for God. Please don't put a requirement on them to be absolutely perfect. Now, if there's something that is just theologically way, way outside the ballpark, fine, don't sing it. But don't spend your life nitpicking over songs that someone has written in the overflow of love and devotion unto God. Unless you're going to do that for every hymn writer throughout history. And believe me, when you look at some of the older hymn writers, they have a few dodgy things going on as well. And we need not be overly concerned with the form of worship. Some of you love liturgy. You love the more traditional form of worship where prayers are read and hymns and chants and whatever. That's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you love modern, contemporary, upbeat worship. That's fantastic. But 
don't criticize each other or fall out with each other. Worship God and, and use whatever helps you to show your adoration and your praise to God. And when you are defending a particular form of worship, just think for a minute. If I was in some village in the foothills of the Himalayas in a house church, would I be trying to force them to worship the way I worship? You probably wouldn't. So we worship in spirit. We worship empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit draws God's people together, particularly in music and singing. The Spirit-filled charismatic movement has presented us with much worship. And we also worship in truth, which means we need to know who God is. We need to know who God is. Dallas Willard writes, We desperately need to see who God is. When we see the Lord of hosts, we cannot help but move into doxology, which means worship, when we see him. So there's an aspect of our worship that has got to be based on truth about who God is and what God has done. I love going to worship after a sermon, after a message after spending time focusing on truth about God, about Jesus, and then going into a time of corporate praise where we respond and lift him up. If we're all spirit without truth, we can end up getting into a bit of an emotional frenzy. But we need emotion in worship, definitely. God gave us our emotions and we should use them. If we're all truth without spirit, we can end up in quite a dead, formal way of doing things. We need to have both. We need to have the true vision of who God is, and we need to have the power of the Spirit setting our hearts on fire to worship Him. We started off in the book of Revelation, and just to point out that Revelation itself came to John as he was in worship. When you read chapter 1, you'll find that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I believe that means he was praying and he was worshiping. He was in the presence of God, adoring God and praying. And in that context, the revelation was given to him. And I can tell you plenty of times in my own life when it has not been necessarily in the the quiet times or reading a book, but it's been in the times of praise and worship where I have felt God just speaking deeply into my heart. I remember a few years ago that I had too many plates spinning, which can be a a common problem. I was just doing too much. I was too busy. I was working for the exam board as well as working in school. And in a dream one night, round about March um, in this particular year, uh, I believe God told me to leave that. In the dream, I saw a letter uh, which was basically me resigning from, from that post because I was had, had too much to do and I needed to free up some time. Um, and I thought, that's really interesting. And I wrote it down in my journal and thought about it for a while, but didn't actually take action. And a couple of months later, I was in worship uh, at a gathering in Belfast. I can't even remember really what it was, but it was a gathering of church leaders to, to, to worship and to pray uh, for the nation. And in, in, in worship, Uh, In a song that had a line in it somewhere about surrender, I just felt God arrest me and say, I asked you to lay that thing down and you haven't laid it down yet. 
And there, there's a clear moment of the Holy Spirit just getting my attention in that place of worship. And after that, I did immediately respond. I want to finish off by talking then about how worship transforms us. I need you to go to Isaiah 6. And we need to go on a little journey here for you to get the point of this. This might be an aspect of worship that you haven't possibly thought about before or been made aware of before. Isaiah chapter 6. So We're going on a wee two or three minute wander here before we get to the point. But we've got to do the wandering in order to make the point. Richard Foster says to worship is to change. There is no option. If we present ourselves to God in worship, the Holy Spirit will change us. In Isaiah 6, God calls Isaiah and gives him a very peculiar calling. Uh, Quite a negative sounding calling. Not something that you'd maybe be jumping around and saying, you know, whoop, look what God's called me to. Isaiah 6, verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. All excited. He's heard God and calls come and he says, Yes, I'll go. Pick me. Verse 9. He said, Go and tell this people. This is what Isaiah's ministry is going to be. This is the result of of Isaiah's preaching. This is the intention of Isaiah's preaching. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So God says to Isaiah, here's your ministry. You're going to go and preach. And the response that I want is that people's hearts will become hard. Their ears will become dull. Their eyes will be closed. Now that's not very encouraging. As Isaiah embarks on that ministry, I'm sure he's not thinking about his Instagram page and his private jet and the money that's going to roll in because he's going to be so popular. God commands him to go and preach and that the response will be blindness and deafness and hard-heartedness among his hearers. Now, why is that happening? Why is God going to use Isaiah's preaching to judge the people? What sin have they committed that they're going to be judged for? Whenever you read in the Old Testament, and as far as I'm aware, this is true of every single occasion. Whenever you read about the sensory organs not working, eyes, mouth, ears, and and the heart as the center of who a person is, Whenever you read language about the eyes becoming blind, the ears becoming deaf, the heart becoming hard, it is always in the context of one sin and one sin only. It's not murder. It's not theft. It's not adultery. It's not hatred. It's not lies. The sin that this language is used in the context of is always the sin of idolatry. I want you to see that. And we're going somewhere here. Remember, 
Stay in Isaiah, go to chapter 42. We're going to talk about how worship transforms us. So hold on, don't be, don't be dropping out. Isaiah 42, verse 17. Listen to what God says. Those who trust in idols and who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Listen to the language. Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant? That's Israel. And deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one committed to me? Blind like the servant of the Lord. You've seen many things, but you've paid no attention. Your ears are open physically, but you hear nothing spiritually. Again, the language of idolatry with the language of deafness and blindness. Look at Isaiah 44. We could go on. I'm not going to go on, but we could go on. Verse 15 of Isaiah 44 talks about a man going out and cutting down a tree. Look and see what he does with the tree. It is a man's fuel, Isaiah 44, 15, for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal, roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest of the wood he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. Now listen to God's verdict. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. You'll get the same language in Jeremiah 5. You'll get it in Ezekiel 12 and all over the Old Testament when God declares his people are blind or deaf or hard-hearted or unable to speak. It's in the context of idolatry. Now, Psalm 135, go there. And you will see why. Psalm 135. We're going somewhere. We're nearly there. Psalm 135, verse 15. We've looked at how the language of deafness, dumbness, blindness is associated with idols. And here's why. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak. This is the idols. They have eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Nor is there breath or spirit in their mouths. Now look at verse 18. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. The reason that Isaiah is to go and preach a message that will cause people to become deaf and blind and hard-hearted spiritually is because they are being judged for their idolatry. They have chosen to worship things that cannot speak, that cannot hear, that have no heart, that have no spirit in them, that cannot see. That's what they've chosen to worship for years, centuries before Isaiah comes to preach. And God is using Isaiah's preaching to judge them. And the judgment is this. You will become like the thing that you worship. 
you want to bow down to an idol that is blind, you're going to become spiritually blind. You want to bow down to an idol that is deaf and can't hear, you will become spiritually deaf. You want to bow down to an idol that has a hard heart of stone, your heart will become hard. That is the judgment of God on those who worship idols. And the principle that I want to lift from this as I draw to a close is you will become like the thing that you worship. If you drink deep from the cultural well of media, TV, even certain news feeds, be careful where you read the news. If you just undiscerningly drink in and, and worship at the altars of entertainment. There's nothing wrong with entertainment and moderation. I hope the cinema opens in time for Chris Nolan's movie, which will be out in a few weeks. I will wear a mask. I will wear a visor. I will wear a space suit. I will rent out the whole cinema and sit in it on my own if I have to. I'm going to see it. There's nothing wrong with some entertainment. But if we are worshiping at the altar of media and entertainment, you know what happens is our thinking, our hearts, our minds, our lives will become conformed to the mindset that is being presented to us. So many Christians simply cannot discern what is good from what is evil, what is life-giving from what produces death, because they've spent so much time worshipping at the altar of entertainment and they have become indoctrinated and brainwashed with it. You will become like the thing that you worship. It's a biblical principle. In Exodus chapter 32 and 33, you read this sort of language being used about God's people. Now listen carefully. God's people are described as being stiff-necked, unbound, wandering, needing to be regathered at the gate and led. Stiff-necked, unbound, wandering, needing to be regathered at the gate and led. These are terms for cows. These are terms for cattle that have broken out and that are rebelliously running riot all over the place. This is language of cattle. What were they worshipping just before this? In Exodus 32, they made a golden calf. And the language describing the people in the chapters after that is the language of a herd of cattle that are out of control. You will become like the thing that you worship. Jesus, to all of the churches in Revelation, says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's not just saying, listen up. He's saying, you've got issues with idolatry and you are becoming dull in your hearing. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. You will become like what you worship. We should worship Jesus. And we should be transformed into the likeness of Jesus as we worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a couple of examples. Dallas Willard says that God's presence will make for an immediate, dramatic change in our lives. Folks, when you really come into the presence of God, whether that's on your own in worship or whether that's corporately, you won't walk out the same. Jesus said in Matthew 5, don't come to the altar to bring a gift if you've got a grudge against your brother. Let me just read it to you. 
One of the ways that the Holy Spirit will transform you in worship is in your relationships to other people. Matthew 5, 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar, let's bring that into our context of worship, of praise. If you're offering your gift of worship and praise, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, leave your offering in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled, then come and offer your gift. If you come into a place of worship, God will very quickly convict you about your relationships, about how you speak about other people, about how you treat other people, and about relationships in your life that need to be addressed. You will not be able to enter fully into worship and at the same time hold a grudge against someone. So stop doing it. Stop holding grudges against people because you're only limiting yourself in worship by doing that. And what you'll you'll hear people do, you know, they'll come into a gathered worship context and they'll maybe go out and afterwards they'll say, ah, you know what? I just wasn't really able to enter into worship this morning. And you'll all this spoofing will begin, you know, I just, I didn't like the choice of songs or I didn't like the music or the sound mix wasn't right or or it was, you know, it was too warm, or they say, I couldn't, I just couldn't really enter in this morning. And it's like, no, sorry, mate, you have a grudge in your heart against somebody. The Holy Spirit was convicting you, and that's why you couldn't enter into worship. Nothing to do with anything else apart from your own heart. You need to go and sort that out so that you can worship freely. Another way that the Holy Spirit will convict us in worship is how we speak about people. James writes in in chapter 3, verse 10, out of the same, well, let's read verse 9 first. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. You go into a place of worship and praise, you will very quickly know the Holy Spirit convicting you of how you've used your mouth the rest of the day or the rest of the week. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. This should not be. And don't just think cursing is bad language. I actually think to use your mouth for gossip, I hate bad language, but I think to use your mouth for gossip is far worse to use your mouth for criticism of others and slander of others behind their back. Whether it's true or not is not the issue. Don't do it. Because out of the same mouth should not proceed slander and gossip and curses against other people as well as praise. When you come into the place of worship, you'll be transformed. The Holy Spirit will not allow for your mouth to be used for both of those things. Another thing we read, read by raising holy hands in worship and prayer. We can't raise holy hands in worship for very long before the Spirit will convict us about anything else we have done with our hands that has not been holy. Worship is a choice to respond in adoration and devotion to God, to declare the worth of the one who has sought us and redeemed us. It's an act of our will by which we put up the seals and then the wind of the Spirit blows and comes and transforms us and propels us forward in our Christ-likeness. And I would challenge you, particularly in these days, 
to make worship more a part of your daily devotional routine. If that means kneeling, if it means raising your hands, if it means sitting quietly in the garden, if it means singing out loud or just in your heart, if it means listening to music or sitting in complete silence with just the sound of the birds singing around you, whatever it is, spend time just adoring God and responding to the God who became flesh and sought you and sought after me. It is our only reasonable act of worship, according to Paul in Romans 12, to present our whole lives, our whole bodies as living sacrifices. Amen. Daniel, can you pray for us, buddy?